Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, go and open up to Luke chapter 15. That's where we're going to be today as we finish up this one more equals one less series. And as you flip there, I want to tell you a little story about um, one of my great uncles. I had two great uncles that were Baptist preachers. Um, and unfortunately, just because of their, you know, being so much older than me and, you know, the time where, you know, every sermon wasn't on YouTube and Vimeo and Facebook Live, unfortunately, I never got to hear either of my uncles preach. They lived, you know, far off and it was just one of those things. And after I got the call into ministry and I began to preach, began to preach I uh, pulled one of them aside at one of our family reunions one time and I was just trying to pick his brain and ask him, you know, how did you prepare your sermons and, you know, what were some of the best books you read and, and then what, what, what's maybe one sermon, maybe if you had one sermon that was your go-to, it's kind of the theme of your ministry, what would that sermon be? And I expected him to kind of think for a second because, you know, he had preached for, you know, many, many years, but as soon as I asked it, he rattled off an entire outline to me from a sermon from Genesis 3. You don't have to flip there, but if you're not familiar, Genesis 3 is, is talking about the fall of man when sin enters into the world and in their shame and guilt and the, the weight of sin from their rebellion, Adam and Eve run and they hide from the presence of God. It says there as he comes in in verse 9 that he asks the hiding Adam and Eve, where are you? And from that passage, my Uncle Richard rattled off three quick sermon points. He said that, number one, everyone is somewhere. And you hear that and you think, well, yeah, everyone's somewhere. But, but he's meaning spiritually and in relation to God, right? Everybody's somewhere in this relationship that we're supposed to have with God. And because of sin, number two, not everyone is where they're supposed to be. Just like Adam and Eve, many times sin and rebellion and, and disconnect comes in and we run from God and we hide and we try to cover and, and we live in this shame. And if you don't get to where you're supposed to be, you're going to end up where you don't want to be. That was his three points. And I can remember it as vivid as it was yesterday. We were standing at my sister's house in her kitchen and he rattles off these points and they stuck in my mind since then that yes, everybody's somewhere spiritually. Everybody's somewhere in relationship to God. Everyone in this room is at different points in that connection and closeness. And sadly, not everyone's where they're supposed to be. And that if we don't get to where we're supposed to be, here, now, and on earth, then we're going to end up where we don't want to be for eternity. Well, that brings us to Luke chapter 15. And I believe we see the same thing here within this parable of the sheep, that there's one of these sheep that it's not where it's supposed to be. And that if it doesn't end up back to where it needs to be, the only hope is it perishing. And I believe that God wants every single one of us to help in this rescue effort. That as we finish up this one more equals one less series today, I want to leave us with this charge, with this encouragement, this excitement to go and to look for the lost. To allow God to use us to reach those lost sheep that are around us, those sheep that he loves so dearly. That's what we've been doing this entire series, talking about the one, right? Talking about the importance of the one and the power of the one and, and trying to get buy-in and engagement from everyone in this church that we don't want to be just a bunch of spiritually entertained people that gather one day a week and then don't do anything else. We've been very intentional with every single week in this series where we talked about things like gathering. Yes, we want to gather together. 
Yes, we want to come together on Sundays and worship, but so many times that's where it stops when it never should. And we've talked about how we need to go beyond that into giving of our time and our talents and our treasures. We've talked about growing together in groups and building true community and living life together with other believers. And today we're going to finish by talking about going on mission. Going out into the world and allowing God to use us every day to seek and to save the lost. For us to have the heart of God. To run to those that are hurting with the hope of Jesus. So with that in mind, let's start reading Luke chapter 15. We're just going to read the first parable here. Jesus gives three consecutive parables that are in the exact same theme in order to reach the entire audience that's there. He reaches the men, he targets the women, he connects with the parents through these just amazing parables when every point in all of them is the theme of finding that thing that's lost. Finding that one that is lost and far from God. Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. They're all wanting to come close and be around Jesus and listen to his teaching. And the Pharisees and the scribes, these religious leaders of the time, they grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and he even eats with them. So Jesus, hearing this grumbling, knowing you know, what they're saying, what's in their hearts, he told them this parable. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we leave this series that just so divinely orchestrated and planned, I thank you for this season in, in the life of our church. I pray that we would end it well going into reaching people who are far from you, that, that you would motivate and empower and encourage every single one of us to be your tools, to be your instruments, to be your mouthpieces, to go on these rescue missions to find the lost sinners who are all around us in your power and in your words and in your doing and in your drawing of them. Use us however you see fit for the good of others and for the glory of your name. I pray that your word would speak powerfully in our lives. That we would see and understand your love for each and every one of us and your love for the ones around us in the world. Help us fathom that a little more today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, here we have a parable about the lost sheep and I believe Jesus gives us a rescue plan that we can follow that can motivate us and encourage us to go after the lost. So I just want to walk through this rescue plan, and hopefully it encourages all of us. Number one, I believe we see the priority of looking. If we're going to have a rescue plan to go after the one, to seek and to save that which is lost, first and foremost, there has to be a priority placed on looking, right? 
on actually going out and being intentional. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost? Now, don't let the the parable confuse you and don't miss the point of what Jesus is trying to do this whole time. Every time he's talking about sheep here, remember he's speaking about sinners. He's showing us the heart of God to these religious and the self-righteous that are grumbling about him being with the sinners at the time. They've been murmuring, they've been grumbling, they've been complaining that Jesus is associating with sinners that he's eating with sinners, that, that these people are coming around Jesus. I want you to note the hyperbole in these first couple of verses of the parable too when Jesus says, or when it says here that the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. Maybe your translation says the notorious sinners. This was the who's who this was the worst of the worst. Like, think about those people in your life that you say, I know I'm bad, but these people are even way worse than I am. These are the ones, and it says all of them. Luke and his hyperbole is wanting you to get, man, they're just coming, flocking towards Jesus. The worst of the worst, all that you could think of are gathering around him continually. The wording here indicates that this was a habitual experience. This wasn't a flash in the pan thing. This was Jesus' life, day in and day out, was having the worst of the worst coming around him. And what he's trying to get these religious leaders to see is that if you really loved God the way you say you love God, you would love these people just like I do. This is the heart of the God that you say you love. It's for them. It's to reach them. It's to run after them. And right out of the gate of making this priority of looking, he makes this priority of looking personal. Did you hear how he phrased this parable? Did you see how he started it, which would have grabbed every single one of these Pharisees and these scribes when he says, what man among you? Which one of you, if you were in this situation, would not? That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to make these Pharisees and scribes enter into this parable and make a decision. How would you respond in this situation? Let's just speak hypothetically for a second and say you have a hundred sheep. If you have a hundred sheep, he never says it specifically, you're a shepherd, right? But if you have a hundred sheep and you're out in the fields with them and you're watching them, what are you? You're a shepherd. These Pharisees and scribes would have hated this. Shepherds were the lowest of the low. They were dirty. They were defiled. They weren't worthy. And Jesus is saying, I want you to connect and to feel this. I want you to imagine in multiple different ways the heart of God for people who are far from him. Which one among you, even if they weren't shepherds, they would have known in this time and culture the one responsibility a shepherd has is don't lose the sheep, right? Just you go out with this many, make sure you come back with that many. I don't care what you do when you're out in the field. You can do whatever you want to with the time, but keep them safe and bring back the same number of sheep. Every single person in this time and culture would have understood how high on the priority order keeping the sheep safe would have been. In our culture, it's different, right? Everything's disposable. Everything, you just throw it away. 
You just pull it out, Amazon Prime, and just order it, and you'll have a brand new one in two days, right? Like, that's my fix for everything. Just throw it away, and we'll order a new one on Amazon Prime. And in a culture like that where everything's disposable and everything is readily available that we want, we can just not see the priority placed on one thing, right? To see how important and how valuable one sheep was to a shepherd at this time. And the reason that this personal priority was placed onto a lost sheep is because a lost sheep was a perishing sheep. A lost sheep on its own has no hope. Do you understand that? That, That's what the word here means. That that When he's lost one at the end of verse 4, the word in the Greek there literally means perishing. The biblical usage means to, to be destroyed, to put to an end, to ruin, to kill, to perish. There is no safety for a lost sheep. The shepherds don't come in and, you know, count their sheep and say, oh man, I got 99. That one will be all right. He'll he'll have a good life out in the wilderness on his own. I'm sure he'll find a cave and maybe he'll meet another lost sheep and they'll have babies and they'll have a long, happy life together. There's no hope for that lost sheep, right? He's going to either die by a predator. He's either going to be killed and attacked by, by thieves and robbers Sheep are clumsy. They fall over. That's where you get the the term cast sheep. They'll they'll literally fall over and just can't get back up. They'll they'll just lay on their backs. The blood will flow from their legs so they can't move anymore. Their stomachs will harden. They will just die simply from falling over. There is 0% chance that a lost sheep makes it, survives, lives on. The only outcome is death. The only outcome is to perish Unless there is a shepherd that comes. Unless there is a shepherd that cares. And can I just tell you something? Jesus is painting this picture because that's the exact same outcome for lost sinners. Lost sinners left on their own, what's the only hope? There is none. Left to themselves, they will be devoured. They will be killed. They will perish unless there's a good shepherd that comes. You remember our I am series when Jesus made all these I am statements of who he was and he says what I am the good shepherd. That he's coming to to seek and to save his sheep. Left alone, lost sinners will perish. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes what life was like for us. He's writing to believers now but, but he's tying it in and saying you remember what it was like when you were far from God. And he says in Ephesians 2, in those days you were living apart from Christ. You lived in the world without God and without hope. We'll perish on our own. I'm going to make a confession to you here. Confession Sunday for the pastor. I want to let you guys know about an addiction that I have in my life. It's actually an addiction that me and my wife have over here. I'm going to throw her under the bus too. She's going to hate this. And it's an addiction that we both have that, that happens on Friday and Saturday nights. Some of you are getting really uncomfortable thinking, oh gosh, it's an addiction. Him and his wife, Friday and Saturday nights, they have four kids. What's he about to talk about? <laughs> Here's my addiction. I can't get over it. Live PD. Anybody? Come on. Come on. Somebody shout. Amen. Like me and Jenna, we'll, it'll be like when, Tuesday or Wednesday and we'll be like just a couple more days and Live PD comes on just a couple more days. We can get through this. We can get to Live PD. If you don't know what Live PD is, it's like cops on steroids, okay? You remember cops from back in the day? 
So, so they, they have like these film crews all over America, like eight or ten different cities, and they go live to wherever the action is, and we are addicted to it. But the reason that I bring this up here now is there was a situation that made me think of these lost sheep a couple weeks ago. They go live. I don't remember which city it was in. But they got the call that there were these two little kids, probably two to four years old, that were walking down the street at night in the dark in January with no shoes and with little clothes on. My heart, watching that episode that night, just broke to see these children that they didn't know where their parents were, they didn't know where their family were, they're just on the side of the road by themselves with no shoes and very little clothes in the cold, lost and helpless, and in that moment, all I wanted to do was jump through the TV. Like the Father's heart in me, I just wanted to get to those kids, I just wanted to hold them, just let let me hold you. Just let me let you know that somebody cares about you and that you are okay and I will take care of you and that's all I wanted to do in that moment. And do you realize that's the heart of God for every single sinner? That every single one of them is a child of his that he looks and he longs for and guess what? He didn't have to go through a TV screen. He came into the creation that he made. Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to, but he made himself nothing. He became a man. He entered into this world to seek and to save that which is lost. That God loves every single sinner, that he sees them as his little child that's ran away from him. That if you keep reading this chapter, you get to the parable of the prodigal son. This son that looks at his father and says, basically, I wish you were dead. I don't want anything to do with you. Give me my inheritance and let me go live my life. And he does. But then he stands and he waits. And he watches And he looks and he hopes and he anticipates. And when he sees that son coming back, he runs to him. That's the heart of our God for sinners who are lost from him. Christian, I pray that we would get this and that that would motivate us to go and to help in this rescue mission. To say, God, put somebody before me. Give me the words. Let me know how and when to share. But whatever, I'll be obedient to help bring these lost sinners back into the family. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. 1 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. The Greek word there for perish is the same Greek word used here in Luke 15 for lost. That's what he's saying, the exact same thing. He doesn't want anyone to be lost or to be perishing, but he wishes that all should come to repentance. This has always been the heart of God. This has always been the heart of God, looking for his lost sheep. All the way back to Ezekiel 34, he tells us, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the straight. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. When we realize how precious each and every one of these lost sheep are to our God, we will make it a priority to run after them, to say, use me. 
I know what it's like to be lost and to feel that hopelessness. I know what it's like now to be saved and to have this love and this mercy and this grace, and I want to extend it to others. The first step in this rescue plan is the priority of looking for the lost. The second is the persistence of searching. The persistence of searching. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Until he finds it. There is no going back. There is no plan B. There is no retreat. This shepherd is going and he is going to find that lost sheep. He doesn't call off the search. He doesn't give it a quick look over and then move on. God goes after, relentlessly after these sinners. He doesn't look for things like we look for them very often. I'll confess, you know, I can be in services like this, I can hear messages like this, I can be convicted, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna reach people, I'm gonna evangelize, I'm gonna witness and I can get excited about it for a little bit and then it begins to fade, doesn't it? They don't respond the way I think they should, I get frustrated with them, they don't, you know, they don't show up for the meeting, they, they, they slip back into sin, whatever it might be and I get frustrated and I think, you know what, I'm done with this rescue plan. When God never gave up on us, he persistently and passionately pursues us Do we see that in our lives? Are we willing to to pray passionately and persistently for the lost around us, to to show practical ways of I'm not gonna give up on you, that I'm gonna invest my life in you, that I'm willing to, to give of my time and my talents to see you reached and you come to Christ? George Mueller was an amazing Christian. I share stories about him quite often. He started schools and orphanages and impacted hundreds of thousands of lives in England in the 1800s. But I want to read something to you that he wrote about his efforts in evangelism and the power of prayer in persistently pursuing the lost. He wrote this. He said, in November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission. Eighteen months passed before the first was saved. Five years later, the second was converted. Another six years passed before the third was converted. The last two remain unsaved. He was later asked towards the close of his life if he still prayed for them. Someone brought it up. Hey, you wrote before about these five men that you had prayed for and how three had been saved. He replied, I've been praying every day for 52 years for two men. Sons of a friend of my youth. They're not converted yet. But they will be. How can it be otherwise? What persistence. What love and what passion. What belief in the gospel in those moments and the power of prayer. It goes on to say, Mueller went to heaven praying firmly in faith. Thanking God in advance for the salvation of those for whom he had been praying for over half a century. And within months of his passing, the last friend on his prayer list was converted. Imagine the difference in our families. Imagine the difference in our neighborhoods and in our communities if we were to pray and to be passionate about seeking the lost around us in that manner. That I'm just gonna pray and I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna keep on and I'm not gonna give up and I'm gonna keep pursuing and I'm gonna keep looking for the lost until he finds it. I told a story a while back Last year when 
we were moving and uh, we had went to a furniture store in Gastonia to, to look for a new dining room table. So I've got four kids and they were all with us at the time and it was just this massive old furniture store which is warehouse after warehouse after warehouse and it was just these weird hallways and ramps and it was a maze. You could get lost so easily in there and so we're, we're standing around looking at this dining room table that's there and we're measuring and looking, will it fit, you know, is it the right shape and style and, and then my wife looks at me and says, where's Hadley? That's our little girl, number three of four. And I look around, I'm like, oh, she's somewhere here. And you know, that moment when you're just sure, they're, they're, they're right around there somewhere. If you have kids, you've experienced this at some point. And we begin to look, and, and, and Hadley's not anywhere in that general area. And that's when panic sets in, right? Like, and I instantly go into recon mission. Like, I'm commando rolling over beds. I'm, I'm running across dressers like it's the top of buildings in a rescue movie. I'm like, I've got to find my daughter, I'm, you know, I'm yelling her name. I don't care what I look like. I don't care what the people are thinking about me. I've got to find my little girl. Now, what if we looked for a few minutes and I looked at Jenna and I said, you know what? These people are looking at us like we're crazy. We, we've looked everywhere. We can't find her. We've got three more, you know? Let's just, <laughs> let's just go. Well, I mean, maybe we'll have more in the future, but we got three. We had a good run with Hadley and we'll just, she'll be all right. Would she be all right? No. She was a two-year-old little girl at the time. She, she has no hope left alone in that situation, right? And as her father, I'm going to tear that building down looking for her before I just get in the car and leave, right? I'm calling in the police. I'm calling in helicopters. I, it doesn't matter. We're going to find this little girl. And luckily, she crawled out from under a king-sized bed in the back corner of the place and the gross part is she had a sucker in her mouth that she didn't have when she went in. <laughs> so I wanted to kiss her, but I didn't know what was on that sucker, so I was happy to have her back, right? But to bring this in to us, to make it real for Hope Community Church, a couple of weeks ago, we had over 900 people here worshiping together. It's incredible. And you know what the temptation will be? Let's just set the cruise control. Right? We're good. We're big. We baptized 100 people. Let's just circle the wagons and let's keep the 999 happy, right? Let's just cater to them because that's what you've seen churches do all throughout history. And they get to a point and we get satisfied and we get complacent and we're good. And let's just cater to the complaints of the ones inside and let's not worry about reaching anybody else, right? And then when you do that, guess what? The 99 ends up being 80 and then a couple more years go by and it's 60. And then you've got 30 and the churches look around and they go, What happened? You lost the heart of God. We didn't keep advancing the mission, keep looking outward, keep reaching more people. It's not enough. Guess what? There are almost 40,000 people in our county who claim no religious affiliation. They are far from God and have no hope in and of themselves that they need to hear about Jesus. May we never think we have landed May we never think we have arrived. May we always be looking for the lost, looking to advance the kingdom of God to more and more people and more and more places because that's his heart, to reach people who are far 
from him. The persistence of searching, the priority of looking, and finally the praise of finding. The praise of finding, the joy of seeing a life transformed. Just the joy of seeing someone who was dead in their sin come alive in Christ. That's what it says three times in verses 5 through 7. When he found it, he put it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he brought it back to tell his family and friends, he said, rejoice with me. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. The word rejoice there obviously means to be glad and happy, but it also means to thrive. They thrived in that moment. And I believe we as Christians individually and us as a church corporately, we come alive when we see sinners saved and brought to life. It brings an energy and an excitement and enthusiasm to keep advancing it further and further. That's why we don't allow golf claps when we have our baptisms here. We're celebrating we're excited. We want to, you know, go, be overcome with joy when we see people come alive. And did you hear how many it took for the angels in heaven to celebrate over? The one. There's more joy in heaven among the angels over the one sinner that repents. The one more who has come in because one more found is one less lost. One more in heaven is one less in hell. One more with their Savior is one less suffering. And may we have this heart. Let God instill this in us in the months and the years to come to never underestimate the power and the potential of what God can do through one of us. Each and every one of us. I want to close with one final story. Most everyone in here and in America and around the world knows the name of Billy Graham, right? The greatest evangelist of the last hundred years, maybe of all time, who knows, but God has used him tremendously. There's no arguing that. There's other big names all throughout history that you can bring up connected to Billy Graham, names like Billy Sunday, who was a great evangelist, D.L. Moody, who was a great evangelist and instilled you know, great churches and, and Bible institutes and publishing company, just God used them in tremendous ways. And I know what the tendency is, is we can look to things like that and we can minimize the potential and the power of, of one person that we've never heard of. The common, everyday person from a small town in North Carolina. What could God really do? He only uses really superhuman Christians like those, is what we can buy into many times. And I want to share a story to let you know the backstory to people like Billy Graham and Billy Sunday and D.L. Moody. I want to show you the power of what God can do through one just normal average Christian. The story starts with a man named Edward Kimball. He was a shoe salesman. He was a Sunday school teacher in the 1850s. Just normal. If you Google him, you won't find a lot. They're, they're not great books written about him. He doesn't have a Wikipedia page. He was just a normal guy. He sold shoes and he taught Sunday school. At the time, he worked alongside of a guy named Dwight. And Edward shared the gospel with Dwight, who he knew was lost. This one man who just worked alongside him. I'm going to share the hope of the gospel with him. And eventually, he led Dwight to the Lord. It was 1858. And this man named Dwight eventually became known as D.L. Moody, who was one of the greatest evangelists in history. 
Years later, Moody was preaching and a pastor named Frederick Myers was deeply stirred. And as a result, he went on his own nationwide preaching ministry. And on one occasion when Myers was preaching, a college student named J. Wilbur Chapman heard him. He accepted Christ and he went out and began to share the gospel. He employed a young baseball player named Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday ended up being the greatest evangelist of his generation. Billy Sunday goes and preaches the gospel in Charlotte, North Carolina. Such a great meeting. So many people respond. The organizers invite him back, but Billy Sunday is unable to accept the invitation. So he sends a friend named Mordecai Ham. Ham goes to Charlotte and preaches, but not as many people respond to the gospel until one of the last nights when a tall, lanky boy who walked or who worked on a local dairy farm walked forward. Everyone knew him at the time as Billy Frank. But we know him today as Billy Graham. So, Edward Kimball, the, the, the shoe salesman and Sunday school teacher who nobody really knows, who never stood on a platform, who never, uh, you know, uh, preached to the masses, touched one guy. He led D.L. Moody to Christ, who touches Frederick Myers, who touches Wilbur Chapman, who, who, who helped Billy Sunday, who invited Mordecai Ham, who ultimately reached Billy Graham. But it was all because of one guy that nobody would have ever heard of. Billy Sunday, D.L. Moody, Billy Graham, all because of one man said, I'm just going to be faithful where I am, and I'm going to share the gospel with whoever's around me. I just want to reach people who were far from him. And guess what? We can't all be Billy Grahams or Billy Sundays or D.L. Moody's, but I believe we can all be Edward Kimball's. We can all just say, who's around me? Who's lost? Who has God put right in my sphere of influence that I can share with today? And I'll just trust God with the outcome. I'll let him do what only he can do. Who's the one that's lost that God wants to use you to look for and find? That God maybe has greater things than we could ever imagine planned through that. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I want to end this series in a time of intentional prayer. For the one. For us all to begin to pray and say, God, who, who do you have? Who have you placed before me? Who do you want me to go after? God, show me. Make this a priority. Help me to feel what you feel about the lost souls around me. Help me be persistent in that. Lord, let me experience that praise and that joy of seeing sinners repent. Before we go into this song and enter in this time of worship, maybe you're in here and you say, I am that lost sinner. I am that sheep. And, and I felt God drawing me in this whole time. With every word you said that I connected with, I, I felt that, that, that hopelessness. I felt that being lost and abandoned, like nobody cared, that, that nobody loved me. But I, I feel and I believe that God does love me. I believe that Jesus died on a cross for my sins. That he was resurrected on the third day and overcame sin and death. And I don't really understand it all and what, what everything's going to mean moving forward but I believe that and I want to repent of my sins and I want Jesus to be Lord of my life if you're in here and you want to give your life to Christ today would you just lift your hand wherever you sit I want to be able to pray for you I want to give you some instructions 
on how we want you to respond after this, but I don't want anyone leaving here without an opportunity to respond and to give their lives to Christ. Right where you sit, if that's you, you had a card. If you'd write your name on it, and on the back check, today I gave my life to Christ. You can drop that in one of the silver boxes as you leave today, and we'll get into contact with you about your next steps of becoming a disciple, following through with baptism, the day-to-day of what it means to follow Jesus. For the believers in here, let's take this time to pray and to worship and ask God to place that one in our path that he wants to use us to lead back to him, to speak truth into their lives. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this series. Lord, I pray that we would see a great harvest from this. That we would see people leading their neighbors and coworkers and family and friends to you in the days and weeks and months to come. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.